And so I, I said, you know, Lord, would you give me faith? The effect of this is it's like I can, um, I get glimpses of what heaven might look like coming into places or into people or into, you know, what's the heavenly Lancaster? What's the heavenly Blackpool? What's the heavenly Blackburn? little glimpses, little trailers of what things could be. So I think like, why not in 40 years? Why would you not see a, a, a shift in our nation? Welcome everybody, this is Simon Gilbert with Inspired. Inspired, if you're new to us, is all about amidst the sucker punches of life that we get and the blasted with constant dreariness and negative news and fear-inducing stuff. We want to stir faith by meeting mates of mine from all sorts of walks of life from across the spectrum who have had interesting, stimulating, amazing, inspiring, all sorts of different um, adjectives to describe their experiences in life and the nitty-gritty of seeing how their faith has, has shaped them and has encouraged them uh, to keep going. So hopefully you'll be encouraged when we finish this off in about 50 minutes. I'm, I'm sure you will be because we've got a fantastic guest this week and it is Jill Duff. Welcome, Jill. Great to be with you, Simon. Yeah, fantastic to have you. So, I mean, the reason I wanted to get Jill on was that I read her book uh, a few months ago, Lighting the Beacons, Kindling the Flame of Faith in Our Hearts, and I just absolutely loved it. Uh, Jill, uh, to give her a full title, is uh, the Bishop of Lancaster. She's the Right Reverend Dr. Jill Duff. She's, um, I mean, our overlap has been over the years from about a decade ago at New Wine. Um, she is now actually the Chair of Trustees of New Wine. I loved your talk a few years ago, Jill, at the New Wine Leadership Conference in Harrogate. That was brilliant. Jill studied uh, chemistry at Cambridge uh, initially, then did her doctorate at Oxford. Uh, another podcast with a different host could, could discuss your doctoral thesis, which was investigations of redox-coupled <laughs> proton transfer by iron-sulfur cluster systems in proteins. I've got nothing to say on that whatsoever. <laughs> no, don't worry. <laughs> All right, we'll skip that one. And then uh, you went, uh, spent your early career in the, in the oil industry and uh, anyway I'm looking forward to hearing a bit on, on all that before you went into the church uh, so we'll get to that but Jill know very little about your background any significant moments in your in your childhood go for it mm, yes well I'm from uh, grew up in Bolton in Lancashire and from a family that didn't have faith but I went to the local Church of England primary school and in in some ways I'm a Church of England success story because when I was in four I, I remember seeing pictures of Jesus on the walls and I started to dream about him mm. and he invited me to be like part of a rescue, you know, helping him. And when you fall, you don't get asked to help with much. So that was a beautiful thing. And then probably in the juniors, so about seven or eight, given a Bible, started reading the Bible, really intrigued by Jesus as a person and what he did, went to Sunday school. And then when I was uh, 11, after primary school, I went on a like a kids camp in the summer mm -hmm. and I remember my leader saying to me have you ever heard of the Holy Spirit and I thought not really I've heard of God the Father I've heard of Jesus but never really heard of the Holy Spirit and she said this you don't just read the Bible like it's a normal book ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and I did that and it was literally like Jesus walked off the page of the Bible oh. into my life like a real and living person and um I remember going to meet my mum on um, Manchester Piccadilly Station. It's the first time I've been away from home for a whole week. And I I bounded up to her and I said, Mum, Mum, I've given my life to Jesus. <laughs> and she, she was 
completely horrified um, by this. And she thought I'd been brainwashed by the Church of England, which um, it remains part of her view, really, for quite a number of years. Well, a lot of a lot of my adult life, actually. I mean, actually, just to finish her story is um, I went to see her. Now, this is 10 years ago now, and she was in a hospice in Manchester because she got cancer. And uh, when I got to the hospice, she said to me, you've got to come along the corridor with me to the chapel. I thought, that's a really funny thing for my mum to say. So I went with her to the chapel and she said, I was here last night and I was asking God to make my back better because she'd had a bad back with the cancer. And when she said this, she said, it was like Jesus was here Mm. and he was telling me it's going to be okay. Wow. And she, and, um, she said, that's what you've been trying to tell me all these years, isn't it? Yeah. And I don't quite know what happened to my mum that night, but I do know we were from a family of warriors. And if we could worry about something, we would absolutely worry about it. But she approached her death um, on Easter Day, four months later, with an incredible sense of peace. Oh, that's beautiful. Wonderful. So your teenage years, were they sort of um, smooth? Yeah, fair. You know, they were actually. I went to a, an old girls' school, and uh, the the church near me had lots of boys in the youth group. So I <laughs> kept going to the youth group because of the um, um, boys' factors. I don't know. It's, it's good not being cynical. What reasons people go to church, but that helped feed my faith and. Um, um, sort of scripture union camps in the summer. They were mm-hmm. really helpful for that. And when I was 18, just before university, I do, I remember going um, and these um, group of people ca- had been there for a number of years and they came back and they said um, they'd been baptised in the Holy Spirit and they seemed really alive, you know, had this sort of really fiery faith. I've been intrigued by this, but, you know, kind of by coincidence, in inverted commas, over the last year because I've been reading... Um, some Bible notes um, and was drawn by those verses about when John says, I baptise with water, but one is coming after me and he will baptise with the spirit and fire. And I've been praying like, what what, what does that mean? What does it mean for baptising the spirit? And so they seem to be exhibiting this sort of lively faith I hadn't really seen before. And so I asked to be prayed for. And it was, you know, like, like I was filled literally with fire. There was a, mm. um, a verse given to me from, this is Jeremiah 23, that it's not the word of God, like, like a fire or a hammer that breaks the rocks into pieces. That's been kind of an important verse for me. And um, that, that really brought my faith uh, to life. And, um, you know, I know in some Christian circles, there's quite a lot of contention about what does, you know, when we're baptised, you know, surely we receive the Holy Spirit. Then, Well, of course we do. But the word baptise, I think, in, in the original um, actually just means soaked. It was a word they used in the dyeing industry, wasn't it? Mm. To soak a cloth so that all the fibres were soaked in the dye. And I think many of us have the Holy Spirit, um, um, but actually there's, I think there's a, a deeper process. We can. It's not just a one-off. I think we go through again and again and again, but to be baptised, to be really soaked mm. in heaven, that was a beautiful a beautiful moment, actually. Brilliant. So did that, set you, that, did that give you, you know, the signs of that would be boldness, confidence, wanting to share your faith, getting out there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, um, I mean, I think that's, that's been a lifelong thing, hasn't it? Especially sharing my faith of, um, of just finding my voice in, in that. So I went to university in Cambridge and then there, there was quite sort of set pieces, way, ways of sharing your faith um, mm-hmm. that perhaps weren't quite me, if, if that makes sense. I'm not really, a, although I do a lot of speaking on big stages now, I'm not really a big stage speaker in terms of I love one-to-one conversations. I love 
finding people's languages and how they can connect. And so for me, actually, the you know, Jesus has coached me to share my faith in a way that's is it's kind of my own language, yeah. if that makes sense, whether that's with the school mums or the rugby dads, finding what, what is a language um that people can um uh kind of c- connect connect with. Any key moments or, or stories from Cambridge or Oxford days? Um yeah, I mean um so I went to Cambridge um, you know, full of the power of the spirit in, in that sense, you know, plugged into all sorts of CU chapel, that sort of thing. Um, and then I found that I wasn't the cleverest girl in the school anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I was like average, if not below average in my, I went to quite an academic college. And um, that was a real crushing blow to my my pride, I think, actually, in my, my identity. So my very first term, um, was a real crush, you know, in some ways, a a real, I don't know, stripping, is that the right word? I don't know. I, I mean, I'd, a lot of the things I built my life on, like my intelligence, were just not there anymore. And so came home actually quite depressed um, at the end of the first term, saying to my friends I wouldn't go back. And um, uh, I met a friend's parents who'd also been to Cambridge, and they said, look, everybody thinks they've gotten by mistake. Everybody has imposter syndrome. Um actually it's it's not just you and so then f- from being in a place where I couldn't hardly sense I couldn't sense the presence of God anymore where reading the Bible felt just really dry I almost carried on in obedience trusting that he would um kind of find me through that really and that um that that became the case actually so kind of emerged over I mean if anybody's listening to this, suffering from depression it's not something that you normally have the uh, miraculous cure that you wake up and you're okay and normally it takes time really to emerge from the mist and um that would be how I'd, I'd put my story and uh, it took me some time to recover um academic confidence and to think I had gifts in that area ironically um but an important part of that journey was um a house church I went to Arbury Community Church um, in on an estate um, in Cambridge, and they had links with um, some Bible colleges, in uh, one in um, Andhra Pradesh in Hyderabad in India, and one in uh, Nakuru in Kenya. And as I left Cambridge, we we had a went on a sort of like a mission trip to, in theory, help <laughs> the Bible college. You know, these Cambridge graduates helping out. No, no, the help was all the other way around. Yeah. It was humbling to see people who like had like such big faith, you know, they pray and demons will be cast out. Uh, people, and well, I prayed and people would be healed. That was also quite astonishing. Um, I remember being in Kenya and, you know, at this big, big event and, um, you know, a woman received her sight again. And I, you know, I didn't had realise those things happened today. And I remember flying back into Gatwick and thinking this country is asleep. You know, what? there's a real disjunct between my experience and so for me, that that really fired a passion of for cross-cultural mission. A number of my friends and relatives have been abroad. I know that's a passion of yours. Um, but, you know, what is a fire abroad that we can call on in our day to, to, to renew the faith in our nation? We, we know we've got this amazing spiritual inheritance in the British Isles that has almost like gone to sleep. It's our big, like, million-dollar thing in the bank. And my big prayer is often like, look, you know, would you wake up? Would this nation wake up? Yeah, yeah. 
I love it how the, the, the broader body of Christ got so much to bring to us, haven't they? And, and it's interesting how I mean, loads of African brothers and sisters are coming back to these aisles with, with fire in their bellies that puts us to shame. And, and uh, we got, yeah, lots to learn in humility from the body, capital mm-hmm. B, haven't we? Um, now, were you always sort of career-driven? Well, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, in some ways at the beginning, yes, because I went to this all-girls school and um, they'd say to us, look, girls, the Queen's a woman, the Prime Minister's a woman, there's nothing you can't do. <laughs> and so there was kind of um, like this 1980s, like, take on the world, girls into science and engineering and all that sort of thing. So that that did motivate me in science and, you know, uh, academic research and then into the oil industry, uh, into my my 30s really but um a key point for me actually was when I had my my first son and uh, no one told me how how amazing kids are mm-hmm. <laughs> and that you might want to spend time with them and enjoy them and so I spent then a lot of time in my 30s being quite hidden quite in the back back row in some ways and so um not, well not totally but th- th- that was a a, a pattern and so actually this this role as Bishop Lancaster is the first role I've done full-time all right. Since then, and so um, I've had quite a different approach to career. I said no to being a bishop. I kind of hid away, and so a lot of my more recent callings have been people sort of hiking me out of the background and saying, "Come on," you know, like being chair of trustees at New Wine. I looked round and thought, "Gosh, you!" I mean, they pestered me, and I kept saying no. And then I thought, "Come on," <laughs> so that yeah. So I've, I've kind of maybe had a bit of a a different story. Yeah, it's interesting as you mentioned. Um sort of being in the background or choosing to be in the background I, I in your book you quoted um, Henry now and I've got it in front of me now I love love it he talks about hiddenness mm. and he says one of the reasons that hiddenness is such an important aspect of the spiritual life is that it keeps us focused on God in hiddenness we do not receive human acclamation admiration support or encouragement in hiddenness we have to go to God with our sorrows and joys and trust that God will give us what we most need in our society we're inclined to avoid hiddenness we want to be seen and acknowledged we want to be useful to others and influence the course of events but as we become visible and popular we grow dependent on people and their responses and easily lose touch with God the true source of our being hiddenness is the place of purification in hiddenness we find our true selves. And I, I feel like I trust you as, as a leader because you've actually, as you just said, you, you, you mm-hmm. chose hiddenness, didn't you? Well, yes, I mean, to a, yeah, a certain extent. And, and I'm so moved that when you've seen really significant moves of the Spirit in history, so like Benedict going to his cave and praying for three years or the, the Desert Fathers, something like Antony, um, you know, we've got the most scripts of Anthony's writing outside the New Testament than anything else. That's how significant he's been. And he just went into the desert and kind of hid away, really. And um, I think it's it's almost as if the, the smaller the circle you draw around yourself, rather than the acclamation coming from um, the interactions, it's almost it, people seem to be able to reach deeper into heaven that maybe God trusts you with more things. I, d- I don't quite yeah. understand yeah. it. and. Um, but but it, it does seem a significant thing. The smaller your circle is, and maybe people are listening at the moment, and your life has become actually quite small, maybe through illness or a change of job or, um, you know, actually having small children. You know, it's very hard um, 
or it can be very hard to go from quite a full-on career to breastfeeding a small baby and being up at night. But that does, <laughs> in some ways, it does wonders for your spiritual life. In other ways, it doesn't because um, some of those hidden moments can be quite 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 dry we can feel like we, we were used to being out there getting lots of you know engagement with people now we're engaging with very few but um my scripture that kept me going as a mum through quite a number of years of a lot of hiddenness was Isaiah 40 where it says that um the Lord carries um the lambs close to his heart and he leads gently those who have young that he almost expects less um, he leads us gently. And I found that uh, as a young mum, in times when in the past I'd have to go to a three-day conference to get a sort of download from God, um, you know, just little moments he gave me that just cheered me and and, and encouraged me and pointed me in the right direction. Mm. They were very, very tender moments. Yeah. So um, was it clear when it came to leaving the oil industry and your move into church ministry? Um, well, my my lovely husband, he said to me in my early 20s, what do you really dream of doing? And at that moment, we were involved in our local um, uh, Church of England church at Matthews Oxford and really enjoying this sort of combination of mission and community service. Um, they asked me to preach. I was treasurer <laughs> quite early on. So I thought, so when he asked me that question, I thought, oh, well, actually, I'd really dream of being a vicar, actually. But I'll leave it to my 50s when I've had kids and got a bit more time. And um, it was when just a few years later, my dad, um, he, he got cancer and he died. He was in his 50s. And it was a bit of a wake up call, to be honest, because mm. um, I thought you can always put off till later callings that maybe should be for now so actually at 27 I resigned from SO and um, uh, went to train at the ordination at Wycliffe Hall um, in Oxford. So you then went on to Liverpool I think didn't you the Diocese of Liverpool? Yeah that's right so during Wycliffe I had, we did this study um, week in East London and um, I loved it. I loved, loved, loved working in a very different area. It felt like cross-cultural mission, mm. very different. And so when it came to my curacy, I couldn't, there weren't any sort of um, urban, you know, priority area curacies in Oxford Diocese. So I asked to be released and wrote to bishops in Liverpool, Manchester, Chester, and ended up working on a council estate in Liverpool. And I loved the, and it, it, was a, it was a culture shock, actually. And I'm, I'm not saying it was always straightforward, but I love meeting people like women my age who'd, you know, like got five kids and yet were often, you know, so open to the spirit of God. I'd go to parties next door and um, you'd be straight in with like, I'm not, like, why would God bother with me? I'm just so useless. And mm. there was a kind of a real rawness and a real, you know, that you perhaps don't get in so much middle-class areas that I just loved. And in some ways also, some of the incredibly dark stories that happened to people, uh, the deep fissures in their lives that people have been through, you know, tragedies, abuse, all sorts of things. And yet the ones who'd like opened those fissures of their lives to Jesus, you know, they almost like carried his courage, his hope, his faith in ways that weren't done by me because my ego fills those spaces. <laughs> um, and and that, that's given me a real passion for what I call the underground army, actually. Um, I can say a bit more about that if you'd like, but that the renewal of the church, well, no, the renewal of the nation will come from the devastated, the unlikely places. That's his Isaiah 61. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I forget the exact chronology from your book, but you end up um, 
in Witness, and I just got this, uh, this really struck me when you said, when, when the boys were school age, my part-time day job took me further afield to some of the higher echelons of the Church of England with our brightest and best academics. There were CVs of gloriousness to revival mine, and yet again and again, wonderful colleagues as they were, they rivaled me with our feeble levels of faith, love, and openness to God. Like me, they could usually manage everyday life without needing Jesus to turn up. But then going home of an evening to witness was like going to another world where I would meet giants of faith with gaping holes in their fractured lives where the kingdom of God flooded in every day. And after a while, I got used to the cross-cultural shock, but I never lost the frustration that we lauded pygmies of faith like me. I never got used to the tsunami of grace that flows through those cavities of brokenness. I started to joke to my witness family, I, I come home to witness to be revved, all fired up for Jesus. That's the wonder of God's upside-down, topsy-turvy kingdom. Mm. Um, so, yeah, yeah, do talk into it. I mean, because I think, in general, I mean, I've done umpteen years of theological training, but, but most of us, we're, we're way more biblically lit, literate than biblically obedient. We're, we're, we're all educated beyond the level of our obedience, aren't we? Um, so <laughs> that's, that's a good hashtag, educated beyond the level of your obedience. <laughs> that's a good I love that, yes. So share some of those stories of, of the, you know, the nitty gritty of ministry in yeah. such areas. Well, I mean, there's, there's great, there's great quotes. There's a comedy quote from from the Gospel according to Jeff. Jeff was an ex drug addict, and he would say, "Jesus delivered what drugs never could." Mm. Um, uh, or our friend uh, Sharon, um, she kind of got into um, at very low points, been watching God TV, and um, heard about uh, Jesus. She was working in an office um, as a cleaner, actually. And our treasurer invited her along to an alpha course where she kind of came to faith. And she went home and she said to Jesus, Jesus, I just want to be a Ferrari for you. <laughs> and um, when she woke up in the morning, she found this toy Ferrari without wheels on in the garden, like, oh, yeah. like miraculously, with its paint chipped off. And um, she was then in her in another cleaning job. She was she'd been emptying this bin and this t-shirt had got stuck in the bin. It was, it was a sort of textile company and she was yanking the t-shirt and out came the t-shirt and on the front it had a Ferrari. Brilliant. Um, uh, I was talking to the other day and uh, she was more recently in, in a difficult spot and um, this little lad pointed her out to her. I found this car on the radio, this toy car on the radiator and um, she went over and there was a, a, a toy Ferrari with its paint and wheels on perfectly. Beautiful. Um, so there was just that sort of sense of more openness and people, I can, I suppose, almost like know they, know they needed God and were up for stuff. And I just noticed that was Jesus's pattern, wasn't it? He, um, it was Peter and John in, um, say, Acts 4, when they healed a lame man and um, they get into all sorts of trouble. It says, you know, they astonished the, the religious leaders by their courage because they were unschooled, ordinary men, but they took note they'd been with Jesus. And I think that's who Jesus chose and ma major movements of, of, of faith um, through history have normally been catalyzed from the edge of society. Um, because people know they need Jesus. And also uh, people notice 
his visitation, really. So I pray daily for a visitation of the Holy Spirit on our nation. Mm. And we can think, oh, it's going to be a big stage speaker. You know, I first met you, um, well, so I first saw you, you're, you're on stage at the arena. It's like big at the arena at New Wine. It's quite a big deal, isn't it? You know, um, we, we know we, we see the big speaker. No, no, actually, Jesus' first miracle in John chapter 2 was the water into wine where the big man on the stage, he, did, he had no idea anything miraculous had happened. He thought it was just good wine. Mm. It was the little people, the servants behind the stage that um, that realised what the amazing miracle that Jesus had done. And that's why I find Tolkien's stories so moving in The Lord of the Rings, where the hobbits, the little people are the only ones who are humble enough to be trusted with the, the ring of power, if that makes sense. And um, as you maybe know from my book, a, a kind of really catalytic scene in the film was I was watching the bit where we see a little hobbit climbing up at a difficult point in the battle and he manages to light the beacon. And then you see this amazing cinematography of beacons being lit across the hills. And Gandalf says, hope is kindled. And I love it that the, I think Jesus trusts the beacon lighting to the most unlikely people. And more than that, actually, I think... I don't, I'm not a mega vision person, but I did have a vision. This is 2017. I woke up in the middle of the night and there was this massive wave kind of scouring out um, people from the underground um, and depositing them on the beach. They've been trapped under the sediment of the sea. And um, I thought, well, Lord, what, what is the passage that goes with that? Um, um, and he led me in the middle of the night to Isaiah 61 and I read it with fresh eyes. So let me just turn it up. That it was the um, the spirit, and it's obviously his manifesto. So a important passage for Jesus: the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from the darkness for the prisoners. And it goes on to say, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. And I just thought, well, who is they? Well, they are the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the prisoners. It's they who will renew. Mm. They're trapped underground. I started praying like, Lord, what is trapping these people underground? And I was led, long story, um, but I was led to the sense that what traps them underground is the sin of the church. It's pride. It's misogyny. It's racism. It's elitism. You know, you don't talk about being educated beyond your your obedience. People like you and me, we, we get to be elites in the church with our CV of gloriousness, mm. you know. Um, but actually, I can manage without Jesus. I can organise just by the the power of Jill almost, you know. And we, we've, I think we've got in the, certainly the church in the West, we've got into quite a sort of um, problem solution. Let me just work out what the, what the problem is and let me manage it. Mm. We don't get, you know, we don't realise that we need the power of God, the zeal of God, we need the fire of God. Uh, it was interesting. I, I was sent a book uh, just last week, actually, by someone who'd read The Lighting the Beacons. And she sent me a book called Carriers of Fire about the women who are involved in the Welsh revival. And um, interestingly, what, what sort of what was one of the dampeners on the revival, um, because it was, you know, real, you know, it's a miners interceding and unlikely teenage girls who were kind of really influential in this time, was a guy who wrote with his doctorate from Cambridge, you know, saying that these 
these people are uneducated and they can't, you know, uh, do what they're doing. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, it's, you know, well, why do we, I think we live in the West under like almost like 200 years of critical scholarship that has been like this rubble that is, you know, um, uh, buried some of the treasure of our inheritance of faith of people who see visions of heaven, who encounter miracles, who see healing, see demons cast out. Um, I loved your podcast um, with Jonathan from the Nash Day of Prayer just mm. a few weeks ago. So I'm going to do an advert for your podcast here. And, you know, the way he came to faith as a Muslim was he was longing to hear from God. And it seemed that in, uh, it, God wasn't speaking until he went to a church. And then God almost coached him, didn't he, to, to obey him and to hear from him very, very accurately. And so, you know, God says, you know, your parents are coming around at 1257. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he knew he had to hide his Bible. Um, and uh, it, it, that was in, I thought that was, was incredible. We've lost that sense of, you know, obedience. When, when I've tried it, to be honest, I do try and push past this and just respond to promptings even if they feel a bit bonkers mm-hmm. so i was rushing you know a very busy important person obviously i was in houston station this was a couple of years ago before lockdown and um i felt god say you've got to look behind that pillar and i thought oh that's a bit of a funny thing to say but i will look behind the pillar so i stopped r- walked back looked behind the pillar and on the pillar there was this um a plaque commemorating somebody who'd been given a, awarded a Victoria Cross, somebody who worked in a station, been awarded a Victoria Cross in the First World War for um, taking ground behind enemy lines. And um, there's something in my spirit that warmed uh, about that, the idea we're taking ground behind enemy lines. Anyway, um, I got my ticket for the tube and got a 50p in the ticket, in the, in my change. And it was a 50p with a, um, a Victoria Cross on it. I thought, oh, that's a bit of a coincidence. So I, I kept that specially. Then I was on to do this big, big talk and um, uh, a, a church leader came to see me at the end, almost quite a difficult place. And so we spoke about courage and, uh, and I felt I had to give him my 50p. Reluctantly, I gave him this beautiful, slightly miraculous 50p. And, um, uh, he was very grateful for it and told him the story. Um, so this is like just last year, I was going through quite a difficult time as a bishop and uh, went into my room and I looked down, there's something sparkling on the floor underneath my desk. I thought, what's that? And I went, bent down, it was a 50p um, with the Victoria Cross on it. Now, hmm. that, I, I hadn't dropped it. I'm holding it in my hand actually as I speak because I, I keep it on my desk now. I had not put a Victoria. I had not put a fifty p on my on my floor, um, and you could say, "Well, maybe you did. Maybe you dropped money back." And no, I absolutely didn't. Um, and I've had a, a, a series of fifty p's actually. So um, I was doing a quiet day in my garden. I tried to do a quiet day once a month to try and really hear from God, and um, stepped out um, of my back door, and there was a fifty p on the ground with this li- you know, with a lion on it. Mm. Almost like God reminded me to be courageous. And I thought, no, I, at the first time I thought, oh, well, maybe maybe my son's dropped some money, yada, 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 yada. No, no, I'd, I'd fed the birds that morning. There was not a 50p on my patio. And I think sometimes we write off those things, don't we, those little coincidences or calling cards of his spirit. Mm. And I think um, uh, if we almost take take them more seriously, he takes us seriously and he gives us those coincidences and... Um, yeah, tends our cells with those things. Yeah. 
Um, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I, in interviews, you're sometimes tempted just to press on the next question, but I, I like sort of sitting in the silence of just absorbing it rather than just pressing on. Um, you talk about some courage there. And, and again, one, one line from your book that struck me where you quoted a UK church planting leader in Central Asia who'd been there 20 years, and he was asked why some church plants petered out whilst others lasted and multiplied further. So what made the latter happen? What was the difference? And his answer was this extreme courage of local believers. Mm. And you said, this is not what we train for in a context where essay marks dominate the culture. <laughs> and uh, I know you've been involved in um, St. Melita setting up up north because for those outside the UK, you know, there's a sort of north-south divide and most of the resources and the church is definitely stronger in the south. But you want to sort of rectify and address that, didn't you? Mm, that's right. Yeah, unbelievably, um, in, uh, there wasn't a in the northwest of England, which is the most populated area of England, outside um, the southeast. There was not a, a training college to train people for ordination in the Church of England, and there hadn't been for forty-four years um, since St Aidan's College closed. And there's a beautiful story about St Aidan's because in the Church of England. Um, up to about the 1840s, um, if you wanted to train for ordination, you went to Oxford or Cambridge and then they just ordained you, which, is, which says, says such a lot, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. um, and there's a vicar in, um, in Birkenhead, which is just across the water from Liverpool, and he saw Liverpool, you know, the, the burgeoning docks and the workers and the international trade that was coming into that port and the kind of the need and the slums. And so he set up a, um, like a training school called St. Aidan's College to train the dockers, the labourers, the postmen, the miners. And they would do, they would study in the morning and then they'd be doing kind of mission in the afternoon. And I loved that vision and um, that he had the, that sense of training the unschooled ordinary men. And actually, I've met some of the, the last old boys of St. Aidan's College uh, because I, they, they inspired me in some ways. That story inspired me to partner with St. Melitus College to, to help set up St. Melitus Northwest in, in the uh, Basin Liverpool Cathedral, serving the Northwest. And um, uh, it, it was this sense of these, um, yeah, well, that Acts 13 verse I quoted earlier on, really, Acts 4 13, about the, it's the unschooled ordinary men who impress people with their courage because they've been been with Jesus and I would love to see that that kind of underground army of, of people kind of into into church leadership um in our day I mean I think some of our best leaders are literally in prison so mm. part of my role involves um being I oversee some our prisons uh, prison chaplaincies in Lancashire and every time I go and speak in prison it's like a lie they kind of suck the gospel out of you it's so so <laughs> I don't know so fiery and, and and beautiful and I'd love to see that um almost like a bit of a revolution in our training so that people like me I and mean, we've got I'm not not, not knocking using your minds and you know Paul was a, a church planter and you know he, he clearly had a mind for theology but Paul was 13 or well well quite a number of years in the wilderness before God could use him because his yeah. ego was so big Peter the unschooled fisherman he was preaching on the day of Pentecost but our training um gives preference to people like me who are Paul's I think we just need more Peters in training literally um, we need both together, I think, but at the moment we're very weighted towards the pools. But the Peters, they would inspire, my experience is they inspire with their courage. 
so what if our colleges had a bit more of a metric of courage um who's out on mission who's who's living by faith who's who's interceding through the night who's wrestling with god uh, i love that that line from augustine now augustine was um he was professor of rhetoric in milan by the time he was 13 you know, the biggest academic position in the world and so when he came to faith, um, he spotted the desert fathers and mothers in the um, Egyptian desert. And he said, these guys have no education, but they stand up and they storm the gates of heaven. Mm, love that. Hi, folks. Greetings from Bujumbura, Burundi. You might hear the tooting of horns, the bustle of traffic out there. I'm looking out across the capital right now, and it's been so encouraging to see the way God is at work here amongst the poorest of the poor. And if you'd like to support us, you know, you could through prayer. We'd be really grateful. We believe that is the absolute bedrock of our work. So if you want to, that's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash pray. Or if you could spare a few quid or a few bucks, then, you know, financial support obviously makes a massive difference in the poorest nation on earth. So if that's the case, greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired. I'll put those links in the show notes. That's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired. Thank you so much. In the meantime, let's get back to the podcast. Um, and I don't know whether you're alluding to tough times last year, whether that's linked with the shenanigans or the, the church politics and the Church of England. And I know you're, you're one of only four bishops in the House to vote against the successful proposal to introduce blessings and prayers for same-sex relationships. I'm sure that's that's been very difficult ground to, to navigate. It's, yes, it has been interesting, actually, because um, uh, I've had so much positive feedback actually mm-hmm. um, behind the scenes really and only a few complaints um but it is uh, you know i i personally do think this um uh scripture teaches that marriage is between a man and a woman that jesus is quite seems to be quite clear on that i think he's also massively into grace and i think where there's been kind of judgmentalism and homophobia that can't be that can't be his way but I think I think the scripture does give a kind of model for for Christian living, and um, Jesus welcomed everybody; he was super welcoming, and yet he set such crazy high standards. So, um, so I think in church politics, um, um, and I think this in, in, in senior levels um, of lots of organisations, kind of fear and threat are, are quite big things, aren't they? Um, if you do, if you say this, you'll never get promoted. If you do this, you know. And actually, I've I've taken to spotting fear. I've taken to spotting when I go into meetings and people make me feel afraid. And I'm using the spiritual discipline that Ignatius talks about quite a bit. Um, and um, he was a sol- he he came to faith from being a soldier. And um, it's a discipline called acting contrary, acting in the opposite direction. So if you feel if you feel sudden fear, you act with courage um if you feel sudden judgment you act with uh, judging or criticism of people you act with love and um so i've tried to really sort of act in that and so in you know, literally sort of crazy meetings behind the scenes where um you you know there feels quite a threat after I, I thought i'm not having it i'm not i'm going to speak out and it almost makes me more determined social media is quite tricky um, and that's probably been some of the more thorny bits and I think as a woman interesting I think people feel a bit more of a license to slander in ways that mm. perhaps a lot of things have been attributed to me that I haven't I haven't said and that's been painful in its own way but um 
I had a bad day once and, and uh, got back and uh, uh, I almost felt Jesus saying, well, at least they haven't called you the devil from hell, which is exactly what he got called, really. And so I'm, I've, um, I'm, I'm kind of press, press, pressing on, really. And I'm just conscious, you know, for uh, the church across the, the world and certainly the churches where um, that are growing and seeing people come to faith would hold a, you know, a more traditional view of, of this issue. I don't think it's a minor issue by any means. Mm. And this is chronologically actually a bit further back, but in terms of your courage, I'm fascinated that you know how you made national news for supporting the appointment of a, your colleague who doesn't himself or didn't himself support women's ordination. Can you tell us about that one? Oh, yeah, well, um, dear Phil- Philip North, he's my um, colleague, and I was so... Um, for those of you who maybe still know some internal church politics, he was appointed Bishop of Sheffield. And then literally by criticism from outside, this is 2017, he was, um, you know, he it was so personal, he actually stepped back from that role. Mm, yeah. And so I've worked with, you know, that. so he stayed in Burnley. So I was his colleague bishop in um, in, Lan- in Lancaster. And um, um, he'd been through quite a public crucifixion. But the, the thing was, yes, he doesn't agree that the church has got the, um, got the uh, what's the word um, in his mind is the authority to ordain women or bishops because um, he, he very much sees the links with the Catholic Church being important but he has been super super encouraging um, to me to many other women he's helped me find my voice he's, he's really encouraged me he's he texts me to say are you ready to roar Jill it's been a lovely experience and so um, when I when we were coming to um, the appointment of the next diocesan bishop, the sort of boss bishop, um, his name was very much in the frame, and I, you know, obviously, was asked what I thought about that, and so I was very. I thought I, I think he'd be great. Actually, I've really encouraged him. Um, so I was pleased he was appointed in January. Um, I think he's got a real prophetic passion. I think honed in some of the crucifixion he experienced in Sheffield, mm. um, and he. Um, uh, it's great. He's great to work with, and so, but that doesn't hasn't gone down well in some quarters. Not interestingly in Lancashire, but more um, uh, cr- there's been criticism sort of uh, um, from women on the ground who haven't actually met him or haven't worked with him, and that's quite a, a sad thing. I think there's a sort of tendency, isn't there, in, in in some? It's not just church culture; it's our culture. It's to sort of scapegoat particular people, isn't it, to yeah. become tropes? And yeah, is there misogyny in our culture? Is there misogyny in the church? Yes, 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 yes. Is he creating it? No, I don't think he is really. So I would love to see, you know, um, a broad church where people who, you know, want to see, um, have different views on this. I've got friends who are very conservative um, on on this, that women shouldn't speak from a biblical point of view. I'd love to see them flourish in the Church of England because they take often the Bible seriously in a way that other parts of the church don't. And so... um, there was an interesting story, actually, you might like this, quite early doors. I was um, invited with Philip to um, to speak at a quite conservative church in um, in Lancashire. And uh, they were talking, we were asked, we were interviewed about mutual flourishing. How can we encourage different views to flourish on this topic rather than tear each other apart? And we talked about our stories, talked about mutual flourishing. And then the vicar, who was quite conservative on this, they wouldn't, you know, wouldn't agree with me preaching. He said, okay, is there any questions from the congregation? And this guy in the back row said, okay, right, David, that's the vicar's name. Uh, 
Um, you've seen how lovely Bishop Julius. When are you going to um, change your mind on women's ordination? <laughs> and uh, that was just like deadly silence because on, the, on one side was David, who doesn't agree with women speaking from a um, biblical point of view. On the, my other side was Philip, who doesn't agree from a Catholic point of view. And I said, "Oh, actually, David, can I answer that question?" And then the and then I opened my mouth, and an answer came out that I didn't know um, I had. I said, I will be disappointed if either of my brothers change their mind on women's ordination because they will reach people with the gospel who would not otherwise be reached. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, I notice on the conservative side, uh, conservative churches are brilliant at reaching men. And I have two sons and I, you know, think they you know, all pass the elbow. On a Catholic side, I there's deep Catholic roots in parts of our nation. And I think there's, um, um, if you, yeah, the long story there, but I think I think we, I'd love to see those woken up too. Um, so anyway, um, so we we texted afterwards, and, and Philip said, "I thought we were supposed to be talking about mutual flourishing, but the evening ended up being more about the power of the gospel in our nation." Brilliant, love that. <laughs> so good. Um, well, long may you be given these inspired words at key moments, because it was that that verse. He will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. I, I forget mm. that's in Luke somewhere. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, no, that's that's true. And actually, I've done quite a bit of radio and TV speaking about the the um, human sexuality, and that, I would say that that verse has been my um, uh, a touchstone, really. That I didn't vote you were speaking, but um, I've certainly found the more exposing the speaking, everything in me wants to like prepare more. And yet Jesus has been coaching me almost to prepare less, to spend time in the reservoir with him and then just speak out of what he gives me a bit at that moment in time. So Bernard of Claveau talks about spending time in the reservoir um, and not being a canal where you prepare for each talk um, or each session, but spending a lot more time with Jesus and then trusting that he will give you what to say mm. in the occasions. And um, I, I would love it in the, our media, because I think our media in many ways are open to a, a Christian point of view, in, um, open to faith, open to miracles. It would be super to have a lot more people speaking in the media, telling you know stories of miracles. Maybe the inspired podcasts need to get needs to go like commercial somehow, um, because um, you maybe don't know the data, but the data is that in the twentieth century, the church, well, certainly the Church of England, but the church in England, I think, generally uh, declined for every decade, apart from one. Um, I don't know if you can guess which decade that was. I'm going to put you on the spot on your po own podcast. Mm. Um. Oh, shall I help you out? <laughs> Go on. So 90s. the decade it grew was the end of the 1940s. Right. After a national trauma, uh, people were reaching out for hope. What does life mean after death? Why did the church grow? It wasn't because of great bishops, but it was because there were people who could put the gospel in a language that other people could understand. Yeah. Like like C.S. Lewis, yeah. amazing, yeah. a politician, amazing radio ministry, Simone Vail, T.S. Eliot, um, Dorothy Sayers. And I'm praying for musicians, for artists, for yes. scriptwriters, and for podcasters who can put the gospel in a, in a language 
that is so accessible so that people can understand. And I think you're out there, if you're listening to this podcast, you are out there. But like on the day of Pentecost, like, would your tongues be unbound? You know, why did the Spirit come? Well, lots of reasons, but a major one on the day of Pentecost was so that people could hear the gospel in their own languages. Mm. Hey folks, looking ahead to 2024, I'm planning my speaking schedule. So whether it's a Sunday service or men's breakfast, evangelistic event, youth, whatever, do get in touch at info at greatlakesoutreach.org. And hopefully I, myself, or one of our team of great speakers at Great Lakes Outreach will be able to come along and share with you. Get in touch, info at greatlakesoutreach.org. Maybe see you next year in the flesh. Let's get back to the podcast. Oh, this is brilliant, Jill. Uh, I want to keep on going for ages, but uh, we're vaguely drawing to a close. Um, I, I just, I wanted to explore a bit, well, and you share a few stories in your book, in terms of when you encounter Christ at a deeper level, that fullness of the Spirit, and the outworking of that in terms of gifts of the Spirit. For you, what does that look like? Words of knowledge, prophetic uh, insights? Mm. Yeah, a number of different things, really. And um, I think... Um, Jesus wants us to look at those lists and, you know, what would you love me to give you? Um, and, and ask, I was really struck by the, by 1 Corinthians 14, you know, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, mm-hmm. especially the gift of prophecy. And I remember thinking like, what? What does that mean? So I, I, I literally asked Jesus, like, would you coach me in this? And so what happened? I think this is about the time I was, uh, starting St. Melitis Northwest as a tutor. And um, there's, uh, there was quite a lot of student reports at the end of the year, felt quite overwhelmed by the amount of work I had to do for that and slightly drowning in it. I remember one day just sitting down saying, Jesus, could you just help me with this? And he said, well, just ask for a word for each one of them. So I sat down, literally two minutes, eight students, boom, 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 boom. So like wrote these words down. And then in my one-to-ones with the student, I sort of like beat around the bush for like uh, 20 minutes. And I finally say, oh, does this image or this scripture mean anything to you? And boom, boof, the conversation opened up and um, uh, everything came out. And so I've, I've got into doing that, not waiting 20 minutes of beating around the bush, but actually actually praying for words for people. I, I, I often won't say I'm doing that, um, but I'll say in advance, it's sort of say, well, does this mean something to you? And boom. Um, so I, I do that just quite a lot, a lot, a lot. And so we do annual conversations with our clergy, with all our vicars, and I like a major on this before before I have a meeting and like, Lord, what is it? And, and I'm trying to read the room, read, read story, you know, and um, just almost like listen and see, and almost try and see as, as, as they speak as well. Um, I think um, uh, the other gift I've really prayed for, so this is as I was becoming... Um, I knew the bishop thing was on the on the in the offing. I went to a church above the hills in Aberystwyth. It's a it's a church I love. Long long story because it's called St Paddan's Church, and um, I've been there to pray in the past because um, my husband um, set up a training college called St Paddan's, and um, this time I went in to this particular occasion. It was um, there'd just been a wedding in the church. And it was beautifully prepared and there was confetti on the floor. And I went up to the altar and knelt down. And um, and I felt Jesus say, this is like a way, you're consecrating yourself in a new way as you're ordained as a bishop. What would you like me to give you as your wedding gift? I thought, wow. Mm. 
So I, I got the Bible, I opened 1 Corinthians um, 12, read through the list of spiritual gifts, and the gift of faith leapt out at me. And so I, I said, you know, Lord, would you give me faith? And so whenever whenever anybody says, you know, what would you like me to pray for you as a bishop? I say, please, could you pray for faith? Mm. The effect of this is it's like I can, um, I get glimpses of what heaven might look like coming into places or into people or into, you know, what's the heavenly Lancaster? What's the heavenly Blackpool? What's the heavenly Blackburn? And it's almost like, and he doesn't give me sort of 3D download full time, but little glimpses, little trailers of what things could be. And and a lot more sense of, do you know what, in a, in, in a generation, in our nation, we have seen massive turnaround in faith. You know, if you look at 1790, for example, you know, uh, the banking system was terrible every one woman in five in, in London was involved in prostitution you get this keen set of Christians you know Wilberforce and his Clapham sect he's super keen so he thinks he can outlaw slavery in 18 months it doesn't take 18 months it takes 40 years mm. but 40 years slavery is outlawed uh, working conditions for, for women and children in the mines is massively different and the banking system London becomes the banking capital of the world because a gentleman's word is his bond. That was a generation shift. And um, so I think, like, why not in 40 years? Why would you not see um, a a shift in our nation? Another heroine of mine, if you read my book, I've got quite a few heroines, but um, uh, it's Lady Margaret Beaufort. Mm-hmm. She she set up my college at the college I went to in Cambridge, and so she was was always in the periphery. But I read a book about her, and um, she's got an incredible story that when in this is in fourteen um, fifty two fifty three, she was uh, from the House of Lancaster, interestingly, and um, she was married off because you get married off when you're twelve in those days. She had a baby. Um, she was too small to give birth. She um, uh, her body was broken by this but also her son was her, her husband died in the wars of the roses at that point and her son was taken off her and made ward of this other aristocratic family and so that 12 year old had um hours to pray in the night and at the very same year she heard stories of Joan of Arc being pardoned by the Pope a generation earlier another teenage girl had had visions for the nation of France, where she felt in her spirit it was not right that the France was overrun by English troops. And they had been for a generation, a hundred years war. And, you know, Joan of Arc had seen his vision. She'd rallied, courageously rallied the troops and been burned to the stake for her by the English. Um, but I think that sort of praying, uh, that intercessory, long vision, we, a nation, and not putting up with this, influenced Lady Margaret. She thought... You know, we, why are we having the Wars of the Roses? When this is this is ridiculous, and I think she she you know, I mean she prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. She had like prayer knees, and twenty five years later, her son um, became king, mm. um, Henry the Seventh, and a year later, uh, this is fourteen eighty six, he married Elizabeth of York, and that became the end of the Wars of Rose, the Roses. And so she prayed on a sort of like a nation scale. And when I, I was asked to um, uh, go uh, preach at my old college in Cambridge, Christ College, it was to do with their occasion of that. It was about 40 years since women had been admitted to the college and their big benefactors feast. And so I asked them, could I have the original um, documents or the, a copy of the original documents for the founding of the college? Uh, it was founded in 1505 by Lady Margaret. 
Um, and um, there's a line, and it is exactly as I thought. There's a line in those documents that said, "The governance of the nation is too important to be left to chance." I'm setting up this college to one to intercede for the nation, and two to call out leaders from all you know all walks of life. Now it's put in like language of the time, not in sure. how I'm saying it there. But I think that vision. So that for me, that's that's what I'm praying. Mm. It's the It's for leaders in all walks of life, good leaders, not just in the church, but in all all spheres of life. Um, but also houses of intercession, you know, hot spots around our nation to change you know, to, to to change the spiritual atmosphere um, over over the British Isles to unearth like this fiery magma of our spiritual inheritance that has you know that. English is is, is a is, is a world language, isn't it? You can speak it anywhere. It's a, what if the gospel travelled afresh in English across the world in our, our nation? And that's why we need our brothers and sisters from across um, the, the the global south at the moment. You know, uh, whether you know, like where, where where your passions are, you're seeing them bringing we need them to bring back the fire to re- reignite the fires to to um, cause um, the the church to grow in our in our time. Um, yeah. yeah. I have to get my last, last to finish that. You That's are it. on a roll, sister. Preach <laughs> it. Uh, listen, we've run out of time. Uh, so last one, Lighting the Beacons, your book. Loved it. Um, go on, give two minutes on, on that. Blast it, go. Oh, well, you know, it came out of a, a vision I had of uh, men, women and children on fire with the Spirit of God. Um, being like beacons in all different spheres of society, not just across the British Isles, but across the world. And um, what's the beacon signal? I think the beacon signal, an agony in the heart of God, which is, I miss you, please come home. I think that agony is so strong. It's forcing its way into our culture. Home is a massive concept, isn't it? And we see people who don't have homes. You know, the prison population, um, many, many, many people have grown up in care. But I think the Spirit of God is missing us. Um, The the Spirit of God is conveying an agony in the heart of of God, saying, we miss you, please come home. And I pray, in whatever way the book might help light beacons in all sorts of different spheres of society, call out voices, unbind tongues so people can hear hear this come home in languages that they can understand and that one day when we meet Jesus before the throne of God with all sorts of people that we'll find that we have more sons and daughters and grandchildren and great-grandchildren than we could ever possibly have imagined. Wonderful. Well, guys, I'll put that in the blurb. You can uh, get it for yourself. And genuinely, I'm not being psychophantic. I just thought it's fantastic and uh, will be a fillip for your soul. Uh, Jill, cheering you on in your very strategic ministry, you being a, a voice for the voiceless, leading very courageously. Keep going strong, sister. God bless you loads. Thank you, Simon. Being just terrific. Okay, guys, listen, I trust you've been inspired and encouraged and strengthened and stirred. So it'd be great if you could gossip this podcast, share it with someone else, share it with a number of other of your friends you think would benefit from listening to it um great if you give us a review on spotify itunes because that just helps the algorithm get it before more and more people um i want to thank adam thomas steer for the editing mike sandman for the mixing you can be in touch with me at simongilbert.com but uh, next week we've got another fantastic guest again i look forward to that in the meantime have a good week and toodaloo